0: Heavy. I don't know why you would make a podium that you would want to move frequently as heavy as it is. So, um, but uh, if you would, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter nine. We're going to jump in and and work our way through some of the chapter today. But before we get started, uh, as we were doing announcements, I I forgot to to mention that that yesterday was Veterans Day, and so for our men and women that have served, we want to just take a moment and, and just say thank you for, for your sacrifice, what you have given up for us so that we have the ability, the 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 capacity to worship. And so if you are a veteran, I would just like to say thank you for your service, and, and it is very, very much appreciated. Um, but I'd also like to say that it, it's a little surreal for me uh, to be up here, and I say that uh, because not even two years ago, I was like one of you guys. I was sitting in the chairs, coming to church every week, and, and the Lord, um, just in his kindness, drafted a plan that, that I could have never, never imagined. And so I just want to take a moment and, and tell you guys just how thankful I am for you all as a church. Um, that I came in as a relative outsider. I'd only visited here a couple times over several years, but the way that you all have embraced me, embraced my family, loved my family, I can't tell you how much how thankful I am for you guys and how excited I am about where God is going to lead us. Uh, I also want to say I'm so excited to have Caleb here, Caleb and Brandy. Uh, And again, this is another plan that we could have never predicted, that when Jordan uh, said that he was stepping down, the way that God worked from the very beginning to, to orchestrate his plan in, in bringing Caleb and Brandy here. Um, if you haven't got to know him yet, like he is eager to dive in. He is eager to get to know you guys, to love you all. And so I'm just thankful for the way that you guys will love and embrace him just the way that, that you all have done with us. And so... Um, and it's already evident that as a church, like we are being grafted into Caleb and Brandy's heart. And so I'm just thankful for that. And I want you to know, uh, I'm also excited to sit under Caleb's teaching as well. And so if you don't know, we're going with a little different model that many of us may not be familiar with, but Caleb and I will split some of the teaching duties up here. And I want you to know, I'm very excited by that because I think ultimately it's a benefit for our long term ministries um, in, as we share this load. Um, it's good for us to be poured into instead of always always pouring out. And so I'm thankful that I get to sit under his teaching. I'm just as excited for that as hopefully you are. And we think that ultimately this benefits the church because we're no different than you all. Like, we are sinners in desperate need of grace, and we need to learn and grow ourselves. And so, I'm excited to sit under his teaching to learn and to grow and to continue my walk. And so, I'm so excited for that. Um, and I'd also be remiss if I didn't just take a moment to, to thank Jordan. Uh, I think Jordan had another obligation with Restore this morning, but I'm so thankful for Jordan, his leadership, his faithfulness, his wisdom, His love for this local body. And so if you were here last Sunday night, we had a chance to celebrate and to honor him. And we walked through 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where where Paul talks about faithful servants and the foundation that they lay. And that's what Jordan has been. He has been a faithful servant here to the journey. And he laid a solid foundation for Caleb and I to walk into. Uh, The way that Jordan has led from the very beginning He did the hard work in laying that foundation, raising us up from the start when we began as a church, and so Caleb and I get to benefit from that. He did all the heavy lifting, and and Caleb and I get to walk into his fruitful labor, and so we are thankful for Jordan and, and what he has done for us, and so I would invite you to continue to pray for Jordan and his family as they transition to this new role with Restore that he would build upon the foundation that has been left for him at Restore. And I'm excited for that work as a foster parent. I'm excited for what Restore is doing in this state and how they are standing in the gap. And so continue to pray for Jordan as he leads that endeavor. It is, it is a huge endeavor. If you've dealt with anything with foster care, you know that it's a messed up system. But we know that God has placed us, our church uniquely, in, in partnership with Restore. And so we get a chance to, to help change that narrative. So pray for Jordan and the rest of his staff as they continue to change the narrative of foster care. But I would also invite you to pray for Caleb. Pray for the elders. Pray for myself as we shepherd you. That that we would love you and shepherd you all well. Pray that we would remain faithful in our walks with the Lord. Pray that we would remain faithful to our wives and that we would teach our children well. And pray that we would serve with endurance before you. Uh, Because pastoring, shepherding, it is hard work. But I'm so thankful that you guys make it easy on us. And I I want to say that from the bottom of my heart. You really do make it easy for us. But again, we would covet your prayers as we lead. So we are in John chapter 9. And so kind of a high-speed recap. Jordan walked us through the first 17 verses last week. And so we saw that Jesus healed the man born blind. And we saw that Jesus saw the man. He saw his need and he moved toward the man. He didn't just walk on past him. But he saw the man, and he did the impossible, and that he healed the man, right? Something that has never been done before. And so at the outset, we saw his disciples. They asked the question of Jesus, whose sin caused this? Why is this man born blind? What sin did he commit or his parents commit in order that he would be blind? And so that, that dovetails into a question that we all ask at some time or another, but why do we have to endure suffering? And so this was a common question back then. Uh, in the Old Testament, we know that God would blind the enemies of Israel. We see that over and over again, and that led to this natural assumption that blindness had to be caused by some sin, not following the Lord. And so Jesus kind of turns that question, and he says the better question isn't whose sin caused this, but how is, his, how is God going to reveal his glory? And for us, the question is, how is God going to reveal his glory In us? And the answer is that he wants to transform us. And so today, in verses 18 through 34, we're going to follow the aftermath, kind of the fallout from this miracle of Jesus. And so we're going to look at the response to this miracle. And we're going to see two very different responses, right? We're going to look at his parents, how his parents respond when they're questioned, and then how the man himself responds. And through this, we're going to see the same theme of suffering. It's going to continue. We're not going to be able to escape this, and we're going to see that there is a cost to following Jesus. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 9. We're going to read verses 18 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the the seat backs in front of you, and so I'd invite you to follow along there. And if, if you don't have one at your house, we'd invite you to take that as a gift from us. And so we're going to read John chapter 9, starting in verse 18. And so this is what God's word says. It says, The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see now? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees now we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. For this reason his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been, been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered saying, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and are teaching us, so they put him out. Let's pray. So Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the faithful examples of those who followed you even in difficult circumstances. So we ask that you continue to build our faith, that we would come to have complete dependence on you. We thank you for your grace, which has taken away our blindness, and we rejoice in your salvation. God, give us hearts today to listen to your word. We thank you and we love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's jump right in, and so look again at verses 18 and 19. So it says, The Jews then did not believe it, a miracle, of him, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how now does he see? And so we want to be clear up front when we see the Jews Here, it's specifically referring to the religious leaders. In verse 13, John specifically identifies them as the Pharisees. And so John kind of uses this term interchangeably. So this is not the crowd that is coming to the man or coming to the parents. It's not the Jewish people in general, but it's the Pharisees, and they don't believe it that a miracle has happened. They assume that it's some sort of hoax, that somebody is lying and pulling their leg, And they're skeptical that this man was even blind in the first place. They're skeptical that a miracle has taken place. And why? It's because something like this never happens. If somebody walked in our door today and said, hey, I've been blind from birth, and today someone spit in the mud and put it on my eyes, and now I can see, I guarantee you every single one of us would have a very healthy dose of skepticism. we would be like, hey, man, let me... Let me get you a HIPAA waiver and let me see your medical file, because I don't believe it, right? And so the Pharisees, they're just like us. They don't believe that this has happened. And so they call the, the the man's parents to validate it because only they would really be able to know was this guy born blind. And so they say, Is this your son? And so as a parent, is this not the worst question you can ever be asked, right? Is this your son? Is this your daughter? So we had a friend, when I lived in Indiana, we were at church one, I think it was a Sunday night, and there was like a kids program going on, uh, like a kids choir thing, and so a buddy of mine was sitting in front of me, and he had his two-year-old daughter, and there was no nursery because it was a choir sort of night, and so he kind of gets just lost in the moment, and his daughter, unbeknownst to him, starts crawling through the pews and crawls up about five rows in front of him, he has no clue. Somebody leans up and says, hey, is that your daughter? And so without missing a beat, he starts looking around, and he's like, where is that child's mother? He says it audibly so that everybody can hear it, but it's because he's like, hey, is that your kid? I don't want to, I don't, that's a scary question to be asked. Is that your kid? And so they can't trust this man's story, and so they go to the parents, right? They're trying to do their due diligence. They don't trust that they're, that they're getting the truth from the crowd. They say the crowd can't really know, and only his parents would be able to confirm this. So look at verses 20 through 23. It says, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees now we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak For himself, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him being Jesus to be Christ, that he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, so ask him. So the parents, they admit, yep, that's our son. Yep, he was born blind. But that's about it, right? They're unwilling to admit anything else. They want to pass the buck. They want to take all the attention off of themselves. And so what do they do? They point the leaders back to their own son. And we see this motivation behind the response that they are afraid of these religious leaders. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about there's one scholar that says he always wants his readers, he always wants his students to understand the real drama that's behind Scripture, especially in narratives like this. Sometimes it's easy for us to just gloss over, yeah, the parents were afraid, but we need to know that there's real fear, that there's real intimidation here being leveled by the Pharisees towards the parents. There is a real fear of consequences, and it seems to be widely known that if anybody confesses Jesus to be from God, to be, um, to be the Messiah there's gonna be real consequences. And so that consequence is being put out of the synagogue or as we would say in today's vernacular, excommunicated. And so we need to understand just how drastic a measure that is. So if you get excommunicated from a church today, that doesn't really mean a ton as far as the rest of your life goes. You can still go down the road to another church and they would probably let you in the door. But back in this day and age, Like when you are kicked out of the synagogue, you are kicked out of every single synagogue. You can't just go someplace new and expect to continue to worship. But it's even more than that. You are excluded completely from society. Like you become a social and religious outcome outcast. You are a pariah. It is a social death sentence. If you have your own business, everybody agrees, we're not going to that guy's business because he's been kicked out of the synagogue. All your friends that you thought you had, they're all gone. When people come across you on the road, they will go to the other side of the road. You are completely removed and excluded from society. And so just let that sink in. This is what the parents are facing It is far, far reaching. And so what does this tell us? This tells us that there is a very real cost to following Jesus. A very real cost. And the parents, unfortunately, they're unwilling to pay that price. They'll follow Jesus halfway until it comes to the point of of losing everything, right? Right? So we've seen this so far in the Gospel of John, that fear is one of the motivating factors of why people don't believe. And so the parents here, they're more afraid of man than they are of God. And so there are implications for us as well. Do we do we do the same? Are we more afraid of man? Or are we more afraid of God? That when the rubber meets the road, are we going to shrink back? So this is what R.C. Sproul says about this. This is Will be on the screen. It says, we are like this man and woman, that God works in our lives and gives us blessings we cannot possibly describe. But when the heat is turned on, we are quick to disassociate ourselves from him. I think if we're honest, we all wrestle with this in some form or fashion. We'll, we'll jump into this a little bit more later on, but man, we have that, we have that tendency when the, when the heat gets turned up, man, I I don't want there to be a cost. I don't want to have to suffer because of this. And so we back away. So let's look at verses 24 through 27. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And so we see this dilemma that the Pharisees have, and this is similar to another dilemma that we see in scripture. Look at Luke chapter 21 through 7, this will be on the screen. In Luke he writes, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them and said, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say "From heaven," he will say, "Well, why did you not believe him? But if we say "From man," all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet." So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And so the Pharisees are in the same type of boat. They can't dispute that a miracle has taken place. The crowd knows that he was blind because they had seen him every day sitting and begging, And so it's undeniable. His parents have testified that, yep, he was born blind. It's not not an act. He was really born blind. And so the Pharisees, they know that something really happened, and they can't explain it. And they can't acknowledge that Jesus is from God, because if they did that, all of their authority, all of their power would be undermined. And so what do they do instead? They attempt to destroy the character of Jesus And basically they're saying, let's make this guy admit that Jesus is a sinner because if he's a sinner, then we know he's not from God, right? They cannot entertain and they won't humble themselves to even the mere possibility that a miracle happened. And it doesn't fit their box. It doesn't fit their expectation. And so they tell the man, hey, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And so they're not asking this guy to bow down and worship the Lord. This is, in essence, them saying, hey, put your hand on the Bible, raise your hand, and say, "Do do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? But it's more than that because the Pharisees, they already have their mind made up. And they are basically saying, hey, whatever you say, we know what we think. We already know that this man is a sinner, and nothing that you say is gonna be able to change our mind. And so they believe that he's a sinner because if we go back to verse 16, they say that Jesus can't be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And we've seen this as a running theme that they care more about their religious tradition, about keeping the, the extra biblical traditions of the law. And so because he has to be a sinner, because Jesus has to be a sinner, it is impossible for Jesus to heal. And so they are essentially pointing at the man and saying, hey, stop lying to us. We know the real truth. They know the answer. They want to intimidate him into agreeing with them, much like they were able to get his parents to do that. And so have you ever been around people like this? They want to force you to believe what they want. And sometimes it's direct. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. I had a boss one time that she always would tag on to something that, She would say, we need to do this, don't you think? Or we should go this direction, don't you think? Never once did she really care about what my opinion was. She just wanted to basically get me to agree without her having to overtly forcing my hand. And you know what? That was very effective because I wanted to keep my job. So I would go along with it, right? It wasn't worth it at that time. So the Pharisees, they're trying the same sort of tactic. They're saying, hey, we know this man is a sinner, so tell us the truth. And so what is the man's response? He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I have no idea. But here's what I do know, that I was blind, and now I see. That I was blind, and now I see. And that's because he had experienced complete and total transformation both in a physical and spiritual sense, that he had been completely transformed. And that leads to a bold witness for this man. And that has, te- that has implications for us because he's essentially giving his testimony before these religious leaders. He's pointing them to an ad- objective fact. that This isn't subjective. He's not basing this on his feelings. But he says, hey, this is who I was. And this is who I am now. And Jesus did it. Right? That's the the essence of our testimony. It can't be denied. We can't rationalize it away. Somebody can't say, hey, I don't think that that's quite right. But we tell people, hey, this is who I was before Jesus, and this is who I am now, and all of it is because of Jesus. And we see the hints of the gospel that he was changed, he was transformed, he's made new. And all he did was point them back to Jesus, that he couldn't do it himself. He couldn't have healed himself, but only Jesus could do it, and that's what he does for us. And so look at what F.F. Bruce says. He says, The man's testimony has been repeated innumerable times by men and women who have found in his words the means of communicating their own experience of deliverance from spiritual blindness through the in-shining light of the world." I know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. If we are in Jesus, that is the heart of who we are that we were blind and now we see. And so we also see the man, he gets a little sarcastic streak in him. As we talk about seeing the drama, most scholars here say that they, they sense a bit of uh, the man kind of tweaking the leaders with a bit of sarcasm. And he says, hey, do you want to be his disciples too? I've told you all of this multiple times. Do you guys want to be his disciples? That's because the man, he senses their hypocrisy. He he knows that they don't want his honest answer. And so he he realizes their intent to intimidate him. And so look what happens in verse 28. He says, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far As this man is concerned, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So, the Pharisees, they revile the man... They verbally attack him, and they, again, rest on their status as a disciple of Moses. Again, we've said that this is a running theme, and they're they're invoking Moses because they want to discredit the authority of Jesus. And so they have this misplaced trust we've seen over and over in Moses. We saw that in chapter 7, that they put their trust in the law. In chapter 8, they put their trust in their identity, their national heritage, as sons of Abraham. But they failed to acknowledge that both Abraham and Moses were both pointing to Jesus. And so because of this, they refuse to acknowledge what has happened in front of them. They don't even want to entertain of it. They don't care that Scripture has foretold the coming of Messiah with great works, great miracles like this, that the, the, the eyes of the blind would be open. Scripture clearly said that this stuff will happen when the Messiah comes. And so they know where Moses is from but they're not going to entertain that Jesus would be from God, even though this exact miracle points to Jesus being the Messiah. And so we see this man's defense, and he points to the facts, and he uses their own logic against them. He says, hey, I was blind, I've been healed, and only God can provide true healing. We know that God is the only one that can do the miraculous, And we know that this has never happened. This type of stuff doesn't happen. And even today, it still doesn't happen. And so he's saying, hey, guys, there's a connection here. This doesn't happen. My eyes were open, and this guy did it. And he's saying, if the Pharisees, if you really followed God, they would have to admit that Jesus is from God because God wouldn't let a sinful man do these extraordinary miracles. And so Jesus' miracles, they proved that he was from God because it was so far outside of the natural created order of things. This wasn't just some unusual event. This wasn't just some recovery from a severe illness. That this was truly miraculous. And so the Pharisees know that God is the only source of miracles. And yet they refuse to believe. And so the man is basically putting them in their place. And so look what happens in verse 34. It says they being the Pharisees, they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are the one teaching us. So they put them out. And so the Pharisees they engage in an ad hominem attack, the type of attack where you don't care about what the actual issue is. You're just going to attack the character of the person. And so this usually happens in my life when I have a disagreement with my brother. He is always wrong because he doesn't know how to use logic or facts. And so I point out the plainness of this. And he gets to the point where he can't justify himself anymore. So he usually just says, you're dumb. <laughs> and so that's what's happening here. The man has laid all the cards on the table and says, hey, this is what's really happened. And so instead, the Pharisees, they, they stop trying to justify their own authority they're done trying to justify their unbelief in Jesus, and so they just attack the character of the man. But here's the funny thing. Their rage blinds the irony of their accusation because they say, hey, you're born in sins. And so this isn't a reference to original sin. It's not a reference to the man's own inherent sinfulness. But if we remember back to John 9, chapter, or chapter 9 verse 2, Uh, This will be on the screen. This is what his disciples asked before the healing. He says, uh, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we need to remember that this was a common question. It wasn't just the disciples asking this, but it would have been the Pharisees. It would have been people in the crowd. The Pharisees would have had this same sort of question, right? Linking back to whose sin caused the man to be born blind. And so by declaring that the man was born in sins, they are actually admitting that the man was truly born blind, completely undercutting their argument. They're inadvertently admitting that a miracle actually had to have taken place. And if a miracle happened, only God can cause that miracle, which means that Jesus is exactly who he says that he is. So by saying that the man is born in his sins, They're saying, yep, he was blind. Obviously, he can see now. A miracle had to happen. God is the only source for a miracle. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. But the Pharisees, they don't even see it. They don't even care. They don't make any sense whatsoever. And so what happens to the man? They kick him out of the synagogue. They excommunicate him. He gets exactly what his parents feared most. This decision, it looks to be impulsive. There's no due process offered to the guy. There's no formal procedure engaged. They just kick him out. He's excluded religiously. He's excluded socially. He becomes an outcast. And we see that the cost is real. This guy, he probably knew that this was going to happen when he's talking to the Pharisees. He knew that this was going to be the end result if he kept pushing Jesus. But he decided it's better to be cast out with Jesus than remain inside without him. And So look at what D.A. Carson says. He says, John's readers, if they are becoming sympathetic to Jesus at all, must now identify themselves either with the parents, whose faith was not strong enough to act with courage, Or with the healed man who comes to a growing understanding of who Jesus is. And so for each of us, we're we're faced with that same question. Are we more like his parents? Or are we like the man? And so that leads us to our applications. And so application number one. We saw this last week, we see it again this week. We're gonna see it next week, that suffering is real. Even as Allison said so beautifully that suffering is a part of this life. And we see it in the life of this man that he was born blind, but even he was persecuted the moment that he was healed. Right? He didn't even get to celebrate the best day of his life because people are coming after us, coming after him. And so this is crucial for us to understand. And I've, I know that we all know this, but it's helpful for us to articulate this sometime, to know that suffering is real, that life involves pain and suffering. It's a result of a fallen world. And even our life in Christ, even if we are walking faithfully in Jesus, our life involves suffering. And so we want to remember that it's okay to wrestle with suffering. That Just because we're wrestling doesn't mean that our faith is any less real, and if you want proof of that, just look to the psalms. Psalm after psalm is writers crying out to the Lord, why, why God, why am I going through this? And I know that that doesn't make it any easier when we we run up against really hard things, but we want to know that Jesus sees us just like he saw the blind man, that he moves towards us, he pursues us, and that he calls us to himself in the midst of our suffering, and he wants us to turn to him. So application number two that builds on this first application. But Application number two, that the cost is real. The cost is very real. That the man and his parents both faced intense suffering when they are confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. And so the parents, they don't want to be identified with Jesus. They stop well short of saying, hey, I'm with that guy. Right, It would only follow as long as it didn't cost them. But the moment that that cost became real, they turned tail and passed the buck back to their son. But The man, on the other hand, he knew the consequence beforehand, and he didn't shrink back. He made a bold witness to what Jesus had done for him. And this is important. He made that bold witness, and he stuck with Jesus, and we're going to see this next week even though he wasn't restored back to fellowship in society, that Jesus didn't come to him and say, hey, hey, Pharisees, let this guy back in society now. This guy was still kicked out of society, still kicked out. But the cost of following Jesus is real. And so we, as believers, we will experience suffering and persecution when we follow Jesus, And so, like I said earlier, how will we respond? Are we going to respond like the parents, or are we going to respond like the the man born blind? And so, thankfully, we don't have to experience the type of persecution that this guy suffered. Lord willing, none of us will have to do that. We don't have to fear being excluded from society. We don't have to fear uh, the loss of all of our friends, but... If that was our reality here in Marion, in Williamson County, would that change our approach and how we approach Jesus? Would we follow until the cost got real? Would we make a bold witness knowing that a very real consequence awaits us? So look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. 13 through 17, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, for the sake of following Jesus, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so this is hard, but this is for all of us, me included, that I hope that if I'm ever faced with real persecution, that I'll be able to say, I'm sticking with Jesus, no matter what that costs and so even though we don't have that level of persecution now, we have to prepare ourselves for that should that day should that day come because it's out there and it exists. And so many of you know that just a couple weeks ago, we got back from Central Asia. And so we have brothers and sisters over there where this threat is very real. And so when the O family was here, they shared a story about a, a guy who had accepted Christ. He worked at a phone shop. And they had had the opportunity to share with him as they were going to buy a little phone. And they found out later that he had accepted Christ. And so we got to meet this kid. He was a kid. He was 19 years old. And he had just, at that point, just a couple weeks prior to us getting there, been let back into his family's household. Because when he accepted Christ at 17, his parents kicked him out of the house. And the only reason he was let back into the house is because his dad died and he needed to go back and take care of the family, an unbelieving family. So he was kicked out because of that. When we were part of their local fellowship, they set up a phone right next to where they were preaching. And that's because another brother FaceTimed in every single week so that he could maintain fellowship because he's, a seeking, he's seeking asylum over in Europe. Because at the hands of his own family, he's been beaten, he had been kidnapped, and so he had to flee the country. But yet he's faithfully sharing Christ, he's faithfully led other uh, refugees to Christ, and so a group of them every week, despite the cost that they've experienced, they've left their homeland, they're FaceTiming in so that they can worship with brothers and sisters in their own heart language. And so this, this is not our experience. But if that becomes our experience, are we ready for that? And so look at what Matt Carter and Josh Redberg say. They say, following Jesus is worth it. The difficulties of following Christ on this, this earth cannot even be compared with the future joy still to be revealed. But that doesn't always correspond with earthly happiness. Sometimes your faith will bring rejection and mistreatment. And so we have to know, like deep down, we have to know that Jesus is always worth it. And even even when we don't feel like he is, we have to know it. We have to stand firm in that. We have to anchor ourselves to that. Because we have to know that the cost is real, even if we don't experience it here and now. And it's better for us to push for that, to push us collectively for that, than to be unprepared if it never happens. So application number three, we want to remember God's purpose in all of this. If you think back to verse, chapter th- or verse three, that God's work, that his glory is displayed. When, when the disciples ask, Who's, whose sin caused this? Jesus responds that this isn't because of sin, it's so that my work can be displayed, that my glory can be revealed. And so we may not always understand why they're suffering. We may not always understand why there is a cost to following Jesus. We may not understand when a little boy loses his life to cancer. But we have to remember that God is always working to fulfill his purposes, to display his glory. And again, that that can be hard when suffering is real, when we are in the midst of just the worst part of life. When we don't experience vindication, when we don't experience deliverance from whatever we're going through, we have to remember that God's purpose is still being revealed in us. And we have to cling to that promise, that the Lord wants us to turn to him even when it's hard, that we can trust him because he's the only one that provides true deliverance for us. We want to remember that he has met our deepest spiritual need. He met our spiritual blindness, and he did that when he suffered and died in place of our sins. And so even when we don't experience healing, when we don't experience deliverance, when we lose a job, when we lose a family member, when we endure the heartache over a child, whatever that is, God's glory is proven and displayed in his death for sinners. And we have to remember that that absolutely outweighs everything else. And because of that, we can follow him and trust him when the cost gets real. So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for your, your marvelous, your wonderful grace. We thank you that that you have met our greatest need on the cross. And that because of that, we thank you that you are absolutely worth it. That you are worth it even when suffering comes our way. That we can collapse into you and we can find our peace and our rest. Even when we're completely put out in this life, we know that you haven't left us. So we ask that you strengthen our faith, that we might trust you more each and every day, that you would call us to yourself, that we might totally depend on you. So we ask that you have your way in this place now. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as the, the band plays, I want you to know that this altar is open. If you want to come and pray, just come down here. Let. Let your request be made known to God. If you want someone to pray with, I'll be over here on the side. Caleb will be on this side. But you respond as the Lord leads you.